Top 10. Oh, yeah. Hey. Hey, buddy. How are you? Well, did you miss me? I did. Aren't, aren't you glad to have your special co-host back? You mean Matt? No, I mean me with Matt being your regular co-host and me. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring other Matt. Good day, mate. Oh, that's it. That is it. I'm very positive all the time. And very handsome and very cool. Is that is that good? You're nailing it, man. I say such nice things to Luke all the time, and Luke really appreciates it and makes him feel better about himself, mate. <laughs> I'm I'm like Luke's private cheerleader. Nah, that was bad. Sorry. Private <laughs> cheerleader. Chelsea Football Club. Dude, Sherlock Holmes. <sighs> There's so much to talk about, Luke. There's so much to talk about. Hey, I have an an, an idea. Yeah, I say we I say we bring back a classic. Ten minute topics. Ten minute topics. Top ten. Oh yeah. Bum 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 bum. Guys, can we just say really quick? I am so effing excited for our next potential guest. It's uh, it, it's yeah. not finalized. So I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, don't want to pull a Rick Warren here, or a uh, or a propaganda. Let's <laughs> go through the other people. We were all or entire at. shows like easier said than done. <laughs> or that one show we were advertising that'll happen eventually. We love you, Arlene. Or another episode of what is Boat Francis saying now? <laughs> Actually, Arlene left her microphone back in Florida. She did. Uh-huh. Why? Because she told me she hates you. Uh, well, no, that would make sense. That 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 uh, <laughs> falls in line with the text I get from her every day, which is "Die, Luke, Die." I think it's just a play on my Twitter name, but I think know. so too. I think so too. What are you drinking right now? Can you tell? Because I'm like, <sighs> no, I just want. Oh, actually, I need. You know what? I need to. I, I need to remember what I'm drinking. So hold on, hold on a second. Entertain all of the kids. I believe Luke has blacked out from alcohol that he, or he knows he's going to black out, so he has to create a system that he'll remember what he's drinking. I am drinking Spotten Oktoberfest, which is a delightful beer brewed in Munich, and Costco was having a sale. Oh Did yeah! Did you just say that you're? I, I heard the words Oktoberfest and Costco and sale. Spotten Oktoberfest. Look at you, Spotten. Spot and Oktoberfest is my second p- favorite beer of all time. Someone's all, someone's almost ready to to put on his big boy drinking pants. Dude, I like craft beer. No, you don't. I'm having <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I was at I was at a place called Local Pour the other day with um uh with a buddy of mine and we were uh, you oh, know Oh cool, someone who's not me. Sweet. Yeah, maybe move here like you should have done years ago. Uh, the uh, like I literally offered you my couch, um, but none of the beds. I mean, we had bedrooms with beds in it, but you couldn't stay there. You had to sleep on the couch. Uh, but I got a nine point five percent beer called Golden Monkey, and I took a picture of it. It's a really good picture. I posted it up on Twitter, but I literally took a picture of it just to send to uh, Catholic Drinky on Twitter to Sarah because I needed her to know spiritually that i i too can drink not the big three <laughs> what are the big three in in uh, your head what budweiser miller and coors ah see to me they're all just kind of one glob of Ugh. but the in bar talk in professional bar speak they're known as the big three because uh, even if you have the world's watch a Netflix documentary, uh, no, but one of my really good friends who's a longtime listener of the show, also known as at angry Catholic is building a bar. And so he's telling us all this stuff. Oh, he is. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Ah, and awesome. whenever you eventually come down, we are contractually obligated to record a hangout episode of catching foxes in Deacon Baldy's that wait is, is he the guy that's doing like the uh, new evangelization bar? No, it's called Deacon Baldy's. All right, fair enough. 
It's an outdoor bar in Houston, Texas. That works. Called, it's not hot enough, huh? <laughs> and they're going to have food trucks. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of everything they have there, I'm just so excited about. That's great. I take back all the bad things I said about you on Twitter, at Angry Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Joey? You'll be a guest one day soon. <laughs> no, you won't. We're past that now. Go on. No, Any- I'm just kidding. That's, that's not true at all. Okay, Luke, I love you so much. I want you, since, since you weren't able to co-host last week, and I told everyone that you were off the show. Um, <laughs> it was so funny. For, for literally four seconds. I couldn't take it anymore. I'm just kidding. Um, we, we, sorry, uh, and no, I don't have, I, 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 I am not burping. I have a speech impediment. Uh, we would never make, do you remember that message? <laughs> Someone wrote in just to tell Luke, you should tell people periodically that you have a stutter because they think that Luke is drinking so much that he's like burping and just stumbling. Which I know what she's referring to because it sounds like I'm out of breath because I actually am. Uh, but it's not, it's not from the rapid consumption of alcohol. No, no, no. It's from a horribly debilitating issue. Uh, I'm just Thanks kidding. for bringing it up. <laughs> Catching Fox, everyone. Uh, damn it! Sorry, I did it again. What's happening? Uh, you're you're going to introduce the what we're going to do today? Oh, oh no, no, no! But before we do that, I am drinking a fine Kentucky bourbon called Rowan's Creek. It's excellent. Is it really it's, from Kentucky? Yeah, all bourbon is right. Kind of. Um, I just want uh, like Kentucky style bourbon, you know, I mean, you're just waiting for that to happen. You know, I think if it's bourbon, it's from Kentucky. I, I, I do not quote me on that. I could be wrong. Cause I want to say that, uh, um, Louisiana does some bourbon as well. So, but I want to say that if it's bourbon, it means it's from a Kentucky, like scotch is from Scotland. So, all right, we're doing the 10, the 10 minute game where one of us is going to bring up a topic and the other one's going to kind of drive the conversation about that topic for 10 minutes. So it's not like a monologue, but it's more like, hey, I'm going to, uh, you know, um, bow down to you or you will bow down to me in terms of who has the mic. Yeah. And I, w- I want you to go first. I want you to share your heart with us. Luke, what, what, what's been going on, man? What do you Wait, want to talk about, bro? Do you bring up other topics and I talk about, or do I have to bring them up? I think I, I think the person who has it brings it up, right? Yeah, and then I ask you. I interview. We interview each other. I think yeah, the way there. it makes sense is I interview you for your topic, yes. and you That's interview right. me That's for right. my topic. Sorry. And right. pants optional. Go. Pants off, dance off, bum 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 bum. Okay, so I'm gonna. You know, we're gonna hit this right off the bat. We're just going to go for it. Colin Kaepernick and his refusal to not stand for the national anthem in any of the NFL games he will be playing in for the foreseeable future. Ooh, wow. He is an African-American? Uh, I believe he's mixed, but it doesn't matter. Yes. And he's doing this because he feels like the culture or our country is anti-minority and mm-hmm. because of institutional racism and all that? Yes. Hmm. And he's no. a he's a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. A I mean all the NFL teams are popular cuz it's a monopoly, but a one of the more uh a successful slash famous franchises. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about it, man? Uh mixed really really mixed. I I, I don't I don't know. Um on one hand, I, I really it like really bothers me because can't we just have one thing that is bigger than ourselves? Like I just I, I so like we're the only for the most part we're the only country in the world that has our national anthem played before all of our sports game, all of our sport events from you know T ball on up. It is pretty much always played. And I think it's because there's just some weird – that's just part of our a DNA as a country. And I would argue that's actually a really good thing for the most part. 
See, okay, uh, so this is that's the point that I wanted to bring up. That's the only thing I have to contribute to this conversation is I think our sports can tend to be nationalistic where it doesn't have to be. Like you go to a soccer game anywhere in the world, number one, they call it football, but number two, they're not going. Uh, that's actually not I'm true. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Ish. But, well, actually, uh, well, actually, they call it uh, football. Uh, with an in um. England, in the, the high class, call it soccer. Mm, that's on. us. That's us. But mm-hmm. the like, you know, I was talking with a buddy of mine who played ball in Japan. And he goes, you know what they do before they play baseball in Japan? And I was like, what? And he goes, nothing. They just play baseball. There's no jets flying over. There's no roar of engines. There's no national anthem. There's no state anthem. There's no flag ceremony. He's like, there's none of that. You know why? Because it's a game. It's a silly, stupid game. And we don't need, they don't feel the need to check everyone's national identity and loyalty just to watch a game of baseball. And I was like, okay, well, I don't think that they're checking people's national identity and loyalty. Uh, but I do see it as as something that's like it's definitely a part of our culture. And I have never been at a game where when they play the national anthem, I don't stand up and do the whole thing. Like I absolutely hand over heart, sing the song, I do it all. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I would I would feel awful if I didn't stand up, like personally. But at the same time, I I personally think it's weird that we do it at all of our sporting events. I think it's it's contrived. It's probably probably has its origins back to World War II, you know, like or World well, War One. It know? actually goes back I mean, this really comes out of the nineteenth century. If you like so for for example, the national anthem of each of of, of the national soccer teams is played is played before every game, which kind of comes out of that era of which led into uh, World War One. But here's where I think it's really interesting about that is I went to the opera probably about a month or so ago, and they did the national anthem before the before the before the opera. So I'm so so I mean I don't know anything about this, but I, but I would be I, I would bet based off of that experience that at least in our in um, our country it goes back that far to where when a large group came uh, together out of the extreme nationalism that we experienced all pretty much I mean pretty much all Western countries had this in the 19th century it comes it comes out of that. Okay, fair enough. So then, I could be wrong. I mean, I mean, I could be totally wrong. I'm just kind of making an educated guess. Okay, so what do you, do you think? This guy is out of line. Do you think Black Lives Matter is out of line? Uh, uh, I don't know. So on one hand, this this is a guy who who says, "Hey, um, me and a bunch of my college buddies," and I mean, he's. I believe he was adopted by. I believe his parents are white, and he was adopted, which is which is fine. I don't, I don't think that really impacts it one way or, um, or the other. When he was in college, him and his his buddies were they were like moving houses, and they were um, African Americans in the in the neighborhood, and people actually called called the cops on them, and the uh, cops came and like drew their guns on them. Because they thought they're like robbing this house, even though they're like moving out. Now, how much of that is true? I don't know. That's what he says. That's been that's been his experience of that. I'm going to take him on his on his word on the you know. But then on the other hand, during one of his like press inter, um, interviews at like afterwards, he's wearing a T-shirt that has Castro on it. And Castro's yeah. an evil man. I mean. He's not as bad as Che, but those are evil dudes. Like Che's almost as bad as a. St- I mean, if he, in, if he had the power, he would have been as bad as Stalin, if not worse. Um, those are not good people. Those are not good leaders. They don't stand for the things that I think a lot of people. I mean, th- these people were. If you think that. America is a bad place for homosexuals trying to be in Cuba after the communist revolution. Like these guys were horrible towards homosexuals. I mean, horrible. Um, and they're, I mean, they're just deplorable. I mean, I think they're, I think Che and Castro are absolutely deplorable. And I do not, I mean, I do understand, but I wish people 
would really stop and think about like their obsession with those two. So like, well, I don't, I don't understand how he can wear a shirt with that man on it and be expected to be taken. Cause I, I think he's actually been very well spoken in a lot of his interviews at, um, at, uh, after the fact, but then when he wears a t-shirt like that, it, I, I just don't know. I, 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 I'm not angry at him for doing that. I think everyone has that right. I think that when you point towards, I think it was the Olympics back in 64 when the guys held up their fist in protest, that was warranted. Think of all yeah. the things that African Americans were not allowed uh, or not uh, allowed uh, to do. There was this huge thing with um, all of the veterans in support of Kaepernick, and uh, this, um, this one guy he uh, came out and he said, "You know, when my grandfather fought in uh, the Vietnam War, people wouldn't give him a loan when he came home. He would try to apply for his VA benefits; they wouldn't uh, give him a loan just because he was black." Yeah, yeah. We need to wrap it up. But I will say this, Luke. I was right. The singing of the national anthem became popular at in Major League Baseball uh, after America entered World War One, and this is from Mental Floss. Uh, baseball games often featured patriotic rituals, such as players players marching in formation during pregame military drills. And bands playing sense. patriotic songs. During the seventh inning stretch of game one of the 1918 World Series, the band erupted into Star Spangled Banner. The Cubs and Red Sox players faced the center flag- flagpole, stood at attention. The crowd on their feet began to sing along and applauded. And then it said, given the positive reaction they did at the next two games, and then when it went to Boston for the Red Sox, the owner brought in a band and had it played. After the war, and after the song was made the national anthem by a congressional resolution in 1931, the song continued to be played at baseball games, but only on special occasions. And then after World War II, it began being played, again, times of peak nationalism and patriotism. Baseball games became venues for large-scale displays of patriotism. And so they began playing it over the public address systems, and then it just caught on after that. That makes sense. I mean, as... As especially with the uh, Cold War era, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, good job. Nine minutes in. Ooh, good work, everyone. So nice. Oh yeah, Duff man. Um, really quick. Do you think? Do you like the national anthem, or do you think it should be "God Bless America"? No, I like it. I kind of do too. I get choked up during like huge or like um huge um. Uh, U.S. games, uh, soccer games. It's awesome. Is, is that like a thing? People trying to get it to God Bless America? I, I've heard about it before because God Bless America just kind of um, – it uh, tends to – I mean it's you know in the vernacular. So it tends to ring a little bit more true. But I think if you really analyze the Star Spangled Banner, it really speaks to the a unique American spirit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like God Bless America is like a pietistic – reimagining of america whereas the star spangled banner is like that see that flag that's flying above a fort that should have been taken over who cares we rock you suck british <laughs> <Go! Yeah. laughs> rockets red glare <laughs> like i feel like francis, francis scott key wrote that in hopes that one day electricity would be invented and then someone would mold an electric guitar harness the <laughs> lightning just to play that song He's like, fuck you, English. I may be in this prison, but I'm going to write this song for Jim Hendricks and play in 200 years. <laughs> 120 years. But, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> just kidding. I just made that number up. Um, yeah, so next topic. Bing. Bing. Turn. Oh, yeah. So me and a bunch of guys, we just had our community group, which is why I was a little late. And coming to record this episode. Oh, no, no, it's only almost Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, it's been but, so long. But one of the things we talked about was architecture and how architecture influences cities. Right? Ooh, I like this. Yeah. So I'm super excited about this because I've already started writing a booklet uh, on, on this thing that I've become obsessed with since we started the show, which is culture. And Christ and culture, nature and culture, humanity and culture, humanity Wait, and nature. What? You started to write a book, and you were just now telling me while we are recording. Well, I just started writing it yesterday. 
after I after I literally said in our Slack we should write a book. Let's talk about this. Oh, I, I haven't still haven't read that Slack yet. <laughs> I need to read that. Well, you said the other one, and I got confused. I didn't know what you were talking about, and I was like, I don't have another Slack. You meant the other chat channel. Now I see what you're talking about. Um, so anywho, we should write a book. Um, <laughs> we should talk about it later. I have yeah. an idea. Go on. Okay. So this whole thing about culture, I have been studying culture like a fiend lately. Um, and there are different ways to relate to culture. And I want to run through them, like the church and culture, Christ and culture. So there was a book by this guy named H. Richard uh, Niebuhr. Uh, and he gave an address, a series of lectures in Austin at the Austin, whatever, theological seminary or something like that. And um, he, uh, oh, hold on. My wife is texting me. Hi, Shannon. Roger Sterling. So we, uh, so he, I want to break down this, this, these models, these five models. Uh, okay. Number one, Christ against or Christ and culture, and this is an accommodationist view of culture, which says God is at work in the world, and the role of the church is to accommodate itself to what God is already doing. Okay, so that's like okay. that's like the most positive view. This is a scale from the top to the bottom. The top is the most positive view you could have of culture. The bottom is the most negative. So you look at the accommodationist view. Then another one's called um, uh, Christ above culture, which is a synthesis view where it's like God is doing good stuff in the culture and the church needs to come and then supplement, get rid of the bad stuff and supplement the good stuff with Christianity. Then in the middle would be Christ transforming culture, which is the, the job of the church is to apply Christ and the gospel and all this stuff to every single part of culture. Then underneath that you have, um, Christ and culture in paradox, which is basically saying there's the kingdom over here, there's the sacred and the profane, and they butt up against each other, but they don't overlap at all. So I go over here, and I'm uh, I'm a good church person, but in this area, I'm just a plumber. I'm not a Christian plumber. There's no such thing. And then you have the very last one, which is the Shane Claiborne approach, which is Christ against culture. <sighs> Did you catch that? Christ against culture. <laughs> Sorry for the cough, everyone. Uh, no, I can delete that. Uh, <laughs> so Christ against culture is the world is is hopelessly corrupt. It's, you know, as Shane Claiborne called it, it's empire, right? Whether it's totalitarian or capitalistic, it's it's still empire. And what the church is called to do is to reject the culture and be countercultural, right? And the thing that I, I, I read, reading through this book, the guy mapped it out into like one of those like quadrant things, right? So across in the middle of a square, and you have these different sections, upper right, upper left, bottom right, bottom left. And he was able to show how the religious right, the religious right, and, and then heavy-leaning neo-Calvinists, or heavily left-leaning neo-Calvinists, uh, they are both in the same side. And the religious right, this is something that I think is really strong. Like, super devout Gen Xers and baby boomers belong to the religious right mentality, whereas I think a lot of millennials tend towards the countercultural mentality, right? Where we, we, mm -hmm. when we are zealous about the gospel, we're not sitting here like the religious, right? Their whole view is the culture is evil, but we believe that political activism can change the culture. So they're a, a transformationist view. They want to transform culture with political activism, especially against abortion and gay marriage and stuff like that. Whereas I feel like a lot of the younger generation, we kind of have an, an allergy to some of that. Where it's like, yeah, like when, I felt like when I was talking with J.D. Flynn, I kept saying like, yeah, but we need to change the culture more than we need to change the law. And I felt like kind of like reexamining some of my, my things that I was saying, I felt like it was more like saying, I need, I feel like there's more weight in, in building groups of Christians in real community with each other than there is in going out and just trying to do political activism and change people that way. And I feel like that's a big disconnect between a lot of us. Like, no, you got to get involved. You got to do this. It's all mm -hmm. about that. And Obama mm -hmm. sent us to hell. And it's like, we're already in hell. Our job is to make sure that Christianity remain or the church is pure and strong and a countercultural community. Um, I agree with you. But I'm, let me play the devil's advocate here. But one of the things that JD brought up that has really hit me, that's really that that has uh, stuck with me is the need for justice. 
though. So if you were to completely go that way where you pretty much ignore of the law, well, not, not like not like in in terms of trying to shape it or to try and have any influence or say over what should or what the law should be. Yeah. Don't you run uh, don't you run other risk though of ignoring uh, justice. Okay, so that's a great question. I'm not saying that just to pander to you. Um, pander. But would you say I'm going to say two things. Now number 1, this isn't my view. This is what I'm trying to like feel out. I I I actually think sure. I actually think no human being falls squarely or very few human beings today fall completely in one camp or the other. Yeah. Um, But I will say this, Shane Claiborne and neo-monasticism, would you say that Shane doesn't care about justice to homeless people, to minorities? He does. And his, I mean, that radically so he's dedicated his entire life to, but he feels like for them to have true justice and true shalom, which is more than just like not beating up each other. Um, but like there, that Hebrew notion of peace also involves prosperity and other things like that. But to have true peace, you need you have to be countercultural because capitalism will never give it to you. Democracy, totalitarianism, any system invented by man will ultimately be poisoned by power and sin and blah 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 blah. Which is what I think like Ratzinger means when he says the the answers the answer a uh, demand's problem in. And every age is holiness, not uh, not management. That's not, that's not what I, I don't think he means that directly, but I think that applies. Yeah, I mean, I that's you, primarily you, holiness. Yeah, you apply that to the the famous story of the British. Um, this one woman, gosh, I can never remember her name when I need to quote her. Um, her Patsy. whole yeah, her whole thing in the UK. She was basically the the driving force behind the British welfare state in the late um, 1800s and early 1900s. And you read her writings, and in the early time of her work, she's like, all humanity needs is a chance, and we'll succeed. You know, all we need is better education and and better living conditions. Mm -hmm. And then writing towards the end of her life, and she's like, nah, there's something wrong with men. There's something wrong with humanity. Like, we're, we're messed up inside. Like, you give people good education, you give people good food, you give people good jobs, and somehow they, they manage to ruin it all. They take advantage. They do this. They do that. You know, and she basically, like, it's not just about management. Uh, it's about original sin. And so the, the, that line of mm-hmm. cultural approaches, the top one, the accommodationist view, takes a too naive view of the damage that original sin does, whereas the bottom counterculturalist view takes a too naive view about the goodness of creation, the dignity of the human person, and the presence of, of grace in the world, moving in the world. So, um, but they, That is fascinating. Yeah, and they all have their place. Like, there is a powerful place. And so this one guy tried to reconcile them all by saying, like, well, at different times of the church, like, if the, church, if the government and the culture is hostile to the church, it's the winter season of the church, then the proper stance is a countercultural model where you're like, fine, we're not trying to seek government power. We're going to live this countercultural revolution of love. And then what ends up happening is too many people join it and it can't just stay within its own community. It affects the community around it. So then what happens? Well, then you go into the springtime and it's like more people, it's still not allowed to be, it's not like embrace openly. So he says it shifts to this notion of like, the transformationist view, which is you still have this negative view of the culture, but you're actively trying to change it. And then he says, then it goes to the summertime where culture and church embrace one another. Like think of the Middle Ages, right? He said, Ten seconds. Yeah. Okay. So the Middle Ages, th- that's the two kingdoms view. You got both of these butting mm-hmm. up to each other because you already were inundated in a Christian environment. You didn't have to be a Christian businessman. You already were a Christian. Everyone was. So you were just a businessman. But then when it starts to go into the decline, then you have the, what they call the relevance model where you're looking at the culture and saying, look at all this great stuff happening in the world. We're just trying to speak to those things with the message of the gospel. Like we're not trying to form a counter to it. We're coming alongside it. And that's like a Protestant evangelical megachurch, a seeker-sensitive church, liberation theology, liberal mainline Protestantism, all of this stuff fits on that trajectory. Look at the good things in the world, and we're going to come alongside it. That was awesome. Good right. work, my friend. That's what my book that was. Was great. Nice. My book's about penis jokes. All right. Um, oh yeah. Just kidding. My book doesn't exist. I'm too lazy. No. Can I tell you the parts that that I think would be awesome for you to write? Yes. Is specifically 
the and this I, it goes back to JD Flynn when I when that I notoriously said like five thousand examples. Am I a Christian plumber <laughs> or am I just a plumber who's a Christian? Am I a Christian artist or am I just an artist who's a Christian? But the whole mm. notion like it was your allergy to Christian rock. No, they're Christians who rock. But what if a Christian band never play, what Amy Grant? She's a perfect example. How many people said that she went secular and then she came back to the Christian stuff? Well, wasn't she just a Christian artist all along? Does that mean she has mm-hmm. to explicitly sing about Jesus? And I think that struggle is is largely where people on the left, on the right, in the middle, and neither are arguing with each other. Is we don't understand intentionally about these different categories. Well, and I, and I think there's also, um, especially within Christian art, there is this weird misunderstanding where it is genre specific, which is really weird. And what's really happening is a community. So you look at a Christian, like one of the things, one of the reasons why I why I like quote unquote Christian music was because the the a community was a blast. It was really fun. Tooth and nail record scene and all that. Absolutely. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was, it was like, it was, there was a thing that was really cool about like knowing, hey, these guys may be out there doing this weird stuff that I don't really kind of get, or it seems really intriguing and I don't get this, but like they're kind of talking about some of the stuff that I experienced in my own life. So I can relate to them on that level. It was really cool. It was like, honestly, I think that's probably the most special part about them, why a lot of people – and I think it's why people felt so betrayed when people tried to talk it down was because it was like, no, it's like it's, – it would almost be like if you said, yeah, I'm like a punk rocker and then you get – like, well, I'm not like that punk. I'm more just like I like it. You know, so yeah, it, yeah it's, it's, it's actually really interesting. But moving on. Top ten. We we have a we have a uh, great we have a great question from one of our listeners who um, whose name is Brian, who I think I met at a conference one time. So hello, Brian. Um, he asked. Uh, da, da, da. He wants for us to talk about uh, the need for the pursuit of excellence within parish and diocesan ministries. And so, for example, can you can um, can you quote unquote like fire a quote unquote a volunteer? Does that make sense? Uh huh. All right. You ready? I am. Luke, have you ever fired a volunteer? Uh, have I ever fired a volunteer? Um, no, but I have fired people before who you, you worked, sure did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boy, did I ever! Uh, who worked for a lay Catholic organization? I like and how I you tipped out around that. Exactly, and I would not be afraid to tell a volunteer that could uh, um, no longer volunteer anymore. Actually, you know, I, I have, I've had some indirect uh, things with that as well. There is nothing so. weirder than firing volunteers. Because yeah. they don't work for you, quote-unquote, but they do for the ministry that you run. And I've had to fall in, I've fired several. I regret none of them. I'm happy I did every single one of them. Happy. Happy I did because they were destroying the ministry. Well, and I, that's the key point right there. And I, I think it's weird to, and I mean, I, I totally understand why he uses this, this like word, but I mean, the word like fire, I can't, I can't, I can't really, um, I guess part ways might be a better thing, but you know, it's, it's when you say, Hey, you're not a part of this anymore. I'm sorry. And I'm not going to let you be a part of this. And um, it's weird, but it's but if you're volunt- if you are getting volunteers correctly, it's going to happen. You know, if if you're harnessing the passion and the and the talents of others, people are messy, and it's going to go wrong at some point in time. Like I haven't met anyone, I haven't met any manager in my in my life. Who hasn't had to fire anyone? Yeah, yeah. That's just a part of life, right? Absolutely. My The cases that I've had to fire people, 
were not, I didn't talk to him about, this is the thing. This is the thing that ticks me off about church workers. We make excuses thinking it's charitable for people's bad behavior, right? So uh, a, a volunteer for youth ministry who refuses to cooperate with the program where all the other adults are doing one thing and they are obstinately refusing to do it. The problem mm. becomes you walk up to them now, the, or the problem becomes you don't walk up to them, you don't say anything to them, and you just be like, well, I'll be charitable and not mm-hmm. say anything. That's not charitable. Charitable Char- is yep. actually doing the exact opposite and saying, listen, you are volunteering to do this. And I, you know, maybe you didn't notice, maybe you didn't realize, you can extend them the benefit of the doubt. Like, you don't have to predicate maliciousness, but you cannot pretend like it didn't happen. I think that's worth repeating. You don't have to predicate maliciousness, but you don't you cannot pretend like it's not happening. There's a reality out there. Someone's not doing what they should be doing, and you're in charge. You have to do something. The worst part is when the church worker says nothing for a long time and then suddenly, to the eyes of the volunteer, fires them. To the eyes of the church worker, it's like, oh, but this has been a problem for weeks or months or years, but to the no one ever said anything. And it's you know, it's really hard. It, you, you have to. So we actually had a really great podcast that danced around this. Uh, I, I think we, we actually even dived into it uh, directly. It's a it is um, in our um, our lost first five episodes that no one will ever hear. And you brought up a really good point, because one of the things that I was struggling with at that point in time was like this idea of a professionalism within uh, the Catholic Church. Oh, and, yeah, or just I remember the that. Catholic orders. Yeah. And we and you um, have this great point that I that I have come back to again and again, where you said it should always be a means to an end. So it's not that if like we do this stuff, we will be good. It's hey, I'm going to do this so I can get X like A B C D, and it and it should always be just obviously. So you don't want to like you don't want to you don't want to screw over anyone. And I think part of that is you just ha- when you have to when you have to, you can. Every church that is in quote unquote like maintenance mode, and this does and and this does not matter the size of the organization. Okay, so I'm just gonna leave it at at uh, at at that. But um, you, if you are currently in maintenance mode, it's because of the people there. And honestly, odds are you're either going to have to have a serious come to Jesus moment, literally. Or they're going to probably have to be let go. And I think we don't want to do that because, honestly, I think the big fear that's in the back of, you know, everyone's mind is what are they going to do? Like, what else are they qualified to go and to go and 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 do? Especially and it gets and it gets harder when they are when they are older. You know, it's like, what is this like? How many how many parishes have really Elderly, I mean, and I really like, I mean, elderly people who work there who should not be working there. The angry old churchwoman receptionist is the stereotype. That's the stereotype. And they've been allowed to get, I mean, they're, but here's the deal when you have an angry receptionist, you have two problems. The first problem is they are the uh, director of first impressions for your parish. And when they're mean, rude, snappy, shut people down, whatever, that is how they perceive your entire parish. So that's one thing. But the other thing is it proves the ineffective leadership of the priests. Because if no, that if you have a consistently negative uh, Nelly at the front desk, yeah. whatever it is, gossip, all that stuff, the the problem is someone will say, you know, that person should get fired or whatever, especially at smaller parishes with smaller staffs where, you know, you have two, three people part-time, full-time employed. You have to have good people at that level. But here's where it, here's where it gets hard, though. I, I completely agree with you on that. But let me just add a couple things here really, really quick. Um, one, there's a great podcast with that guy who's he can be 
a little bit much, but the Tim Ferriss guy, he does four hour body and stuff. Oh yeah. And, um, he interviews the, the, uh, CEO of Evernote. It's, I mean, if you are into entrepreneurial stuff, if you are, if you're a leader within some type of organization, listen to that podcast. It is, if you can put it in the, in other show notes, it is fascinating. And one of the things that he talks about, I'm probably going to get my math wrong on this is if you want to change the culture of, of a, of a company or any real organization, take, take the average, the, the like average time spent employed there and times that by two, like two or three. And so think about how that applies with a company like a, like a, um, a, a Facebook. How many years is this person there? What, like one to three years? I would, I would say. So then, take a take a church where they're there for thirty years. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you add into this um, the fact that you do. I mean, I totally agree about like you know it's the responsibility of the priest. But what if you are a uh, priest? You know, a like um. A lot of the priests here in, you know, our diocese, they are probably moved every five to every five to let's go like seven years or or so. And you can't come in guns blazing because a lot of times that can lead to scandal. And all it, it doesn't really it does not like work out as well as as a lot of like right wing Orthodox Catholics always tend to think. The, the pretend games. Or you know what I would do? I would just go in there and fire everyone. Exactly. And then, yeah, yeah then you don't have a staff and, you know, like two thirds of your like church base now is not going to go because they can't stand you. Yeah. Well, so I would never do that because that's not leadership, right? Leadership is not firing from the hip, guns blazing, all that stuff. That's impetulant children who are doing that under the disguise of management or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really going to get this place in order. Yeah. But I have been at parishes. Where a pastor has come in, seen uh, nothing but ineptitude, inefficiency, um, gossip, backbiting, poor performance, all this mm-hmm. stuff, and three pastors, they all stay there. And he has come in and fired almost every single one of them. And it was the greatest blessing of that parish. I think two people survived that firing. Well, if you know, if you have the credit within your community uh, to do that. And if, and if it really is like hurting your, or if it's hurting the parish or if it's hurting your organization to a point where it's self destructive and you're gonna, you're going to die otherwise then, you know, like it's, it's, it's always a judgment call. I think you just have to be aware of those things because I mean, if you look at, if you look at, um, at Catholic schools, what is probably the number one issue at, at like every school isn't the lack of money, it's gossip. I promise you that's the issue at every at almost every Catholic school. Nine nine out of ten. And that 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 has to be stopped. Why do so. you think it's such an issue? Um, you know, I think not, not, not how widespread it is. How why is it so destructive sure um oh why is it so destructive because it basically turns everyone against each other and you just you just complain all the time as opposed to like you don't you don't get anything done it's just a way of like staying it's basically a lifeboat that i think it's an immediate easy like lifeboat to feel better about what about well it it it's uh, um provides you with like a uh um like a really, like a really, um, ha, ha, um, sorry, I'm trying to trying to determine how to put this. It provides you with immediate control over whatever is going on at that moment, and ultimately doesn't do any good at all. So it's almost just like it makes me feel good about this at the time. My favorite thing was from Dave Ramsey at his work. They actually have a zero tolerance plus one policy for gossip, and they define gossip as anyone who tells anything or tells a problem to anyone who cannot solve it. So if you're an IT guy 
and you go up to the receptionist and you complain about how, or not, if you're a sales guy complaining about IT because your laptop's not working, you're gossiping. And the problem with that is you're telling, you're basically spreading the notion of incompetence, whether it's IT or whatever, to this woman and you're giving them negative views. Mm-hmm. Well, you might just be venting and you might know the subtlety of the context. Well, you know, I mean, I did send them the support ticket late and blah, 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 but it happened again. Or it might have been a bum computer that they tried to fix with whatever budget that they had. And and so he said, but now you have the problem where now the receptionist thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> and he's like, even though there's a million things going on that they have no clue about. Yeah. She thinks and- you're an idiot. And, and he like fires people. Oh, sorry. That, I mean, this is the biggest thing is he fires people. He gives them one warning, and then he fires them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, can you imagine what would happen in a church if they fired everyone who, who was a gossip? Either, yep. A, there would be no more people employed because that's all we do, or, B, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it would totally change the tone. But that's, that's a cultural thing you got to work for. Well, but here's the thing, though, also, and this is this is the overall issue, is that so, I mean, he doesn't run a quote unquote Christian company, but I but I'd be willing to bet that a lot of the people that work there would identify as um, active Christians. And that's really or, you know, they are actually intentional uh, disciples. Not all of them, but I would say he probably has a large oh, yeah. group oh, there. Yeah. That's not the case at a lot of parishes. Yeah, right. right so right. they don't see the need to, you know, adapt their behavior accordingly, which is a major – like if anything is going to kill – the, if it's going to hurt the a Catholic church, it's that. Oh, yeah. All right. Next question. Moving on up. Moving on up. To the east side. I just love that song. And that show. And in a child line. <laughs> All right. All right, Luke, you ready for this one? I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm pumped. Stranger Things. Oh, freak yes. I just so finished that good. tonight. What about Barbara? What uh, about Barbara? Okay, Jimmy. okay, here's the deal. We will Blow sound the spoiler horn. The If you Thank have you. not seen incomparable podcast, yeah. If you have not seen Netflix's uh, Stranger Things by the Duffer Brothers, then you need to turn this off. We're totally fine with that, and go and listen, or go watch the the, the television show on or Netflix. Jump to this time here. You can insert the time there after you know, huh? Huh? Well played. And uh, I'll put chapters in this one if I can edit tonight. <laughs> um, it's like every other episode I actually put chapters in because it takes so long. Yeah, uh, man. <laughs> uh, I love Stranger Things. I loved so, it. So much fun. Oh, my God. Where did Winona Ryder get good again? Sorry, where? When? Uh, <laughs> after rehab. The, uh, when did you meet Will Smith? When did you meet Will Smith? Over, over the weekend. The weekend. <laughs> so uh, I, I put it on. And I just heard maybe within three days, everyone just go nuts for it. So I don't know if that's when it was released or whatever. And then you changed our logo uh, to the Stranger Things uh, Catching Foxes logo. And I was like, what is this? And someone's like, oh, my gosh, are you really going to talk about it? And I was <laughs> like, okay, I'll watch it tonight. So I go downstairs, and uh, everyone's in bed, and it's like 1 o'clock, and I have to give a series of talks in the morning. I'm putting my whole parish this is such a Gomer story. I know, right? <laughs> so at about 11.30, I despair of everything I have prepared and throw, literally throw it all in the trash. And then I'm pissed off at myself, so I turn on Stranger Things. Horrible mistake. Horrible mistake. Because <laughs> it's eight hours, and I'm thinking eight, or eight episodes, you know, 47 minutes, 53 minutes, whatever, an episode. And I'm like, hmm, I could watch a couple of these and get significantly through the story this will be great so i have all my books open that i'm gonna do this these talks from and instead i just watch the show and i watch the next episode and i watch five episodes it is now 3 30 in the morning i'm i'm literally i'm like at all the downtimes of the show which is not very many because it's so so well done i'm like reading and i'll pause it every so often and do my reading and make my notes and i was like you know what 
this is good enough. <laughs> I, I, put, I closed my book and finished the episode like four or something like that. And then watch all the rest of them the next day. I So we started it probably like maybe a month ago, give or take. And I am in love. It makes you f- – so this is – I'm going to get the name of – of this movie wrong. This did right what the Super 8 movie did wrong. Is This is one of the first movies that I've actually watched in an incredibly long time that feels like a Steven Spielberg 80s. It's the Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. 80, like like his like genre of, of movies. They've made a TV show within – with you know, in that like genre, combined with some horror aspects, and it is so great. Um, I, it's, I mean, the whole dungeons, the Dungeons and Dragons thing. Uh, I just like, I, I mean, the ending is great. Uh, every episode's interesting. It's not too long. It's not too short. It is perfect. I really hope we're in in the age now of once of once um of like once every year only having um tv shows with eight to 12 episodes that's all that you need it's perfect it is so it is such an interesting story so like what do you so okay and again we've we've blown the the spoiler horn what do you think happened to l uh the girl yeah yeah, uh, L eleven. I I can't even remember. Like, so she basically kills other monster, but it seems like in other process killed herself. Oh yeah, at the very end. No, I don't think she dies. I don't think. Well, she yeah, dies. of course. You, you have the cop guy who like puts out food for her. Yeah, I I don't know what happened to her. You're right. When I I thought that scene was hilarious, where the boy is firing uh, rocks from his uh, slingshot, and it's slow mo. So it's like epic shot. And the guy, the beast demon thing goes flying back, and then you realize it's her using her last ounce of energy, um, yeah, to kill it. And then they just they just poof away. Yeah, you you know. Uh, so I think. She, oh yeah, I mean they announced they're gonna have another season. So that because I thought it was just a one and done thing. I I didn't realize they're gonna have like other seasons, which I don't know why I thought that, but uh, I one of the things that. I, that I found really interesting about it was it really is. It, I mean, I don't have, a, I don't have a lot of memories of the uh, 1980s, but it like, it really does feel like that time period though. And what really hit me was there was like a whole bunch of times. I'm like, why isn't anyone else like, like, why don't they care about this? Or like, I, like, how are they, how, how are they not being caught? And just stop and go, Oh, cause it's the eighties and people just didn't care. Like, it was probably really easy to break into your school in of the 1980s. It was probably really easy to kind of like just be out on like to be at over at a friend's house and just, you know, yeah, not have to call home all the time. Like, you know, it, we weren't so I mean, it really does kind of capture what life was like back then, which sounds crazy to say about the 80s. Oh, it 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 was perfectly 80s. My wife asked me to describe the show. She would remember the 80s. <laughs> She's so old. She asked me to describe the show, and I said, it's 80s uh, sci-fi horror that's PG-13. That's a 1980s PG-13. So you don't, yeah, see, yep. you don't see blood and guts. You, it's, it's almost entirely composed of jump scares. And the CGI monster, you rarely see it. And when you do see it in the end, uh, while it's terrifying and all that stuff, um, it's not uh, – it, it won't make you – at least to me, it didn't make me, you know, like, what was that sound? You ever see something, like, really scary and horrific and you're like, oh, what was that sound? Oh, I got to turn the lights on, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just uh, – I don't know. I, I, I loved it. I lo- And my wife could not stand it. Really? She couldn't watch it because it was too ominously scary. The music just ruined her. Oh, uh, little like 80s. Uh, the synth. I don't know what you call it. Yeah. yeah it, it's yeah, the not, Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Love it. Yeah. The intro. 
so it's really the first well done um I mean, it sounds weird, but it's almost like a reboot slash nostalgia film. It's the first one that's really well done. Like, I, I, I'd be totally okay if there were more reboots like that. Because, again, it's just restarting a genre, which is that Steven Spielberg-esque movies. I, I'm, it's great. Absolutely great. I'm trying to any other points. I, think that, I thought that all the acting was great. Yeah. Um, the kids did a great job. Uh, I loved how like I don't know, and, and, but it also didn't have like a storybook ending either. Like the girl and that guy don't end up together, but they you know kind of hint that they might. The jock does a turn around a little bit, but he's not like you know all the. I don't know. It was just great. I think the jock and the guy and the girl are together. Yeah, but I think the girl and the other guy are going to get together in a season two. They kind of hint at that when she gives him a uh, kiss on the cheek. Uh. I think she likes. I think she likes her uh, jock boyfriend, but I don't think he's the one. Man, I love the artwork surrounding Stranger Things. All the posters that have come out about mm-hmm. it. All mm-hmm. it's just perfect. It's perfect ET esque. It's perfect. It's like ET meets Poltergeist, like right along that classic yeah. 80s awesomeness. Yep. Ah, uh, and who and who are the Duffer Brothers? I had never heard of them in, until this. Uh, I did a little bit of of background stuff. They got their start. Um, oh man, now I'm gonna forget all the crap that I learned. But they. They tried to actually do some bigger things. Um, the Duffer Brothers. They, uh, shit, what was it? I'm going to just bring it up. Um, yeah, they did Hidden, which is a post-apocalyptic horror film. I remember a little bit about that. And they tried to pitch um, some television show or a, a movie, and no one wanted them. And then M. Night mm. Shyamalan got them to do Wayward Pines. They're actually really young. Um Oh gosh, these guys who are like our age who are really uh, successful. And... <laughs> <laughs> I think they're younger than us. You fucking asshole. <laughs> Born in nineteen eighty four. Okay, that's not that bad. Yeah. I I could take that. Ugh. But M Night Shyamalan brought him in to do. Um, there's a Fox television show called Wayward Pines that mm-hmm. was kind of like scary, whatever. And they wrote um, like three or four episodes of that. Oh yeah. Man, talk talk like talk about like screwing the pooch. What happened to M Night Shyamalan? He did the same movie over and over again. Do you remember how good the happening looked? Yeah, and it is it is horrible. And I but here's the thing: I liked what he was going for. I liked the idea of like trees murdering people. Well, okay, no, not the whole tree thing. It was the idea that, like, we're, it's um, I, so the idea of the film was what happens if people start to kill themselves in extremely like, like violent manners, and it's not cool action. It's actually horrible. Oh my gosh, what is happening here? That's really cool, but to have the answer be the trees were rebelling. Was like, are you shitting me? That's it. And also, the story just wasn't that interesting. Like, like the overall, like, why are the characters doing what they are doing besides the whole? So, I, I, I like the, I like the premise of it. But yeah, it just, it's just the same thing over and over again. I, um, I mean, there were visual elements in that that were totally haunting. That have well, stuck like, with me. The, the, the construction the workers jumping off the buildings. And mm-hmm. you just see him like falling left and right. Cop kills himself. People in a, in a line just pick up the gun and just start shooting themselves one after the other after the other. That's mm-hmm. pretty early in the movie. Um, the guy who goes into the lion pit, you see like actually like see the lions maul him and stuff. Yeah, the guy that runs himself over with the lawnmower. Mm-hmm. Um. The Jeep accelerating to kill everyone in the Jeep, you know, and he kind of lives, so he stabs himself with a glass or whatever. It's just so great. And then the woman at the end who takes the needle out, of, or was that in the beginning or the end, takes the needle out and shoves it into her neck. I just I just felt like I was going to watch another M. Night Shyamalan with a crazy twist that I wouldn't see coming. And 
the twist was the trees, whatever, that's stupid. But it wasn't like it wasn't like signs where it's PG thirty like it was just horrific. You know, it was like yeah, this and, is and I mean, unsettling I, in a way that I just don't like. So And I, I don't mind if it's un if it is so think of like a uh think like saving private Ryan. Uh-huh. That is extremely hard to watch, but it's also like moving and I think it's it is necessary to watch that movie. I don't think that The Happening is a film that, you know, is necessary to watch because of how they kill themselves. But uh, to see, like, all these, you know, because, like, really what was happening was we was, was, like, we saw all these cool things that we, like, that we watch in action films as, like, what would, what would it look like if they actually happened? And it was very, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And I, that's, to me, that's not a bad idea for yeah. uh, a film. I just don't think it was uh, executed well yeah. by any means necessary. We're, we're good. We're on a roll today, man. Look at us. It's almost like it only took 57 episodes. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Top 10. Oh, yeah.